You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. We're in the middle of John 11. Pick up in verse 17. So if you've, we're going to pick up in verse 17. So if you would stand with me as we honor the reading of scripture together. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha had heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had not been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, we pray that you would speak to us through it. We pray that your spirit would exalt the Son. We pray that we would see Jesus more clearly. We pray that our eyes would be open, our hearts would be receptive to the things that you have us for us this morning. Pray that your spirit would convict us of where we err, lead us to Jesus. Lord, we pray that that in all of this, we would see and understand hope, resurrection, life that is available to us in Jesus Christ. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. About 50 years before Jesus was born, there was a a letter written by a well-known Roman. And this letter was written to Cicero. Cicero, you might have heard that name. He was a, a great orator. And the occasion for the letter that was written to Cicero was because Cicero's daughter had died. Tullia was her name. The letter was magnificent in many ways. It expressed a tremendous sympathy. It reminded this grieving father that what this daughter experienced is what every person will ultimately experience. The letter was warm. It was moving. Uh, one person said that. For a letter that was so applauded 
on so many accounts. It was a, a wonderful show of sympathy to a father dealing with the death of a daughter. There was something in that letter that was glaringly missing. And that is that that letter didn't contain anything about hope beyond the grave. What is the Christian hope? We labored this point last week, didn't we? We said that the the hope of the Christian life is that Jesus gives life. That's real hope. Paul, about a century after this, wrote a a letter to, to Christians that had been discouraged because their friends and family were dying. And he too, he wrote them a letter, but it was different. But it was the same. Like the letter that was written to Cicero, Paul acknowledged the, the sorrow of his readers. Listen to what he wrote, and you'll see the difference. But we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Notice that Paul does something here. He acknowledges grief. He doesn't tell those that are reading his letter, you are Christians and experiencing loss, but just buck up. He isn't telling them not to grieve. What he is saying is that Christians grieve differently than those who have no hope. For the Christian has hope, and that hope springs from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that hope is that one day you and I will rise too. We talked about this last time, what hope is. What is interesting is that we see Jesus now in our text. He is the the master minister. He's going to to come and he's going to, to confront Martha in her grief. And we're going to see how he offers hope in the midst of tremendous difficulty. Let's just walk our our way through this text. In in verse 17, we learn that Jesus got to, to Bethany and Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem. It was about two miles off, we're told. So it was close to Jerusalem where the great hostility toward him existed by the religious leaders. John is sure to remind us how close this was to the city. In fact, in the Greek, it's not miles, obviously. It was 15 stadia, or about 1.72 miles. Something else at the onset that catches our attention is that Lazarus had been dead for four days when Jesus arrived. This means that Jesus died right after or as the news of his illness reached him. And he stayed two more days. The four days here is significant. In rabbinic thought, the the soul would hover over the body after death for three days. And the intent uh, was maybe that the soul might re-enter it. But as soon as the body started to change, meaning when the body started to decompose, The soul would leave and the death of the person was irreversible. Now, we don't know how prevalent that 
theological thought was or how much it was thought through in this moment, but it certainly made impact to a a cultural practice. In other words, after four days, there was a, a finality to things. This also explains one reason why John tells us that many Jews came to to Mary and Martha to console them. During those first three days, that was kind of the the middle stage, but after at four days, it was irreversible. Things had set in. This was it was final. And it was time to, to come and console these. This says something of the family's reputation, of course, that people would travel this far to come and console them. But it also noticed that it was the fourth day. There was this finality. And at this point, people would come to console them, which also means that there was a great number of people that would be there at this time to witness the miracle. And obviously, this was all part of Jesus' plan all along. But notice how it does elevate the danger as well. The more people that are coming from Jerusalem, that are going back, that are talking about it, means that the news would get back to the religious leaders. And we've already seen that they don't care about what Jesus did. They care about what he says. That he has made himself equal with God. Something that he will do again. And we'll get to that. But I just want to point out here at the onset that Jesus is taking a risk by coming here and doing this. But the reward, and this is something we saw last week as well, the reward was worth the risk. It's interesting that Martha, and I would suggest Mary too, uh, hear that Jesus is coming. We, we don't know how. They, they hear people are talking about it. There's chatter. And Martha, though, runs out to meet him. But Mary remains in the house. This matches the scene that we see in Luke chapter 10 where Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha is up serving and she is busy. Two women, very different. Martha is often looked at as the sister that we should not be like. We should want to be more like Mary, who sits at the foot of Jesus, not up serving. And while we all do need to sit at the feet of Jesus from time to time, we also must not forget that service and hospitality is a spiritual gift. And it is quite possible that it is because of Martha's service and hospitality that so many people came to their house that day. And ultimately, they witnessed the miracle. I made a reference to this a couple weeks ago, and I said that Martha had what I called ants in her pants. She was always up. She was always doing something. And we know people like that. Seems like I should make a mother-in-law joke. She's not even listening to me. I won't say anything about anybody else. But there's names going through your head. Okay, I'll move on. But she couldn't wait to go and meet Jesus. She didn't sit there and she didn't contemplate what she was going to say. 
She just went. Jesus is coming and she went. She gets to him and we have her recorded words in verse 21. She said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, many commentators, when you read this, good commentators treat this statement by Martha as a rebuke. They use the word rebuke. She's rebuking Jesus. She went out, she met him on the road, and she gave him a piece of her mind. That's what it's saying. I I think this kind of thinking comes from the idea that in the back of our minds, Martha isn't the spiritual one. Mary is. Mary sits at the feet of Jesus. Martha, she serves. She does hospitality. That's not a spiritual thing. But in fact, that is actually a spiritual gift. But I don't think that's the right way to look at this at all. And many commentators agree with me. That, that this shouldn't be seen as rebuke. If it is, then what we are saying is that those with the spiritual gifts of service and hospitality aren't quite as spiritual. That that's a lower gift, and that isn't true at all. Could it be that Martha's expression here was just the the frustration of a heart that was overwhelmed by grief? I'm sure that this is something that the sisters had talked about over and over uh, the past days when Jesus wasn't there. They would ask, when is Jesus going to get here? We send word to him, when is he coming? As Lazarus' illness started to get worse and worse, they would just keep asking that question. Does he care? Is he coming? Because they knew that Jesus was the one with the power to heal. And then things turned. After Lazarus died, they didn't say when Jesus is, is he coming. They said if Jesus would have been here. And ultimately, this conversation that these women had been having over and over the last several days is what comes out as Martha meets Jesus on the road to their house. If you had only been here. William Barclay says that when she met Jesus on the road, her heart spoke through her lips. A heart that was overwhelmed by grief. I think that's a good way to put it. Another reason why some take this is if Martha is rebuking Jesus and use it as an opportunity to tell us to not be like Martha, is that Christians wrongly think that it is wrong to speak so frankly to God. I would suggest that we are to pour out our hearts to God. When I say hearts, I mean our fears, our anxieties, our frustrations. We can take that all to him. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 says, cast to, it says to cast all your anxieties on him. All of them? Why? Because he cares for you. Did you catch that? He cares for you. He's your father. He's the perfect father. And the perfect father is the one that you can come to when your heart is overwhelmed by grief. If not him, who? Abba, father. He's the perfect father that cares about his children. And that everything that we are walking through, 
We can come to him. This means that we can come to him in our grief when we are overwhelmed. You don't have to get it straightened out first. When there's so much going on that you can't comprehend it, you don't have to comprehend it before you come to him. Our burdens, our questions, those things that are frustrating us that we don't understand. I mean, just think of the resounding phrase in the Psalms. How long, O Lord? How long? That phrase comes from a a grieving, a frustrated heart, full of anxiety. I mean, and these are are people that are writing these things that are, are full of faith. It's a heartfelt cry to their God. Let me ask you this question. What does affliction do in the life of a Christian? It pushes you to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pour out our hearts to him when we go to him. I think I need to clarify something here. And that the reason that I'm adamant here is that, that Martha's statement, I'm spending so much time here, that Martha's statement here should not be seen as rebuke, but as grief is important. Some might think, well, that's just nuance. That, that she was rebuking God in her grief, right? You can use the word rebuking there. I, I'm using the word more properly, not generally. Rebuke means to confront one with wrongdoing, to warn them. That's just not what is happening here. I think it's helpful here to understand something about grief. Grief throws a person for a loop, and often grieving Christians lose hold of truths about God that they ought to know. One author said it this way As believers, their broken hearts reach out to the Lord but their grieving minds grope in shadows. That isn't an excuse. It's reality. It happens. And as time goes on, the grieving process progresses and the shadows fade. My job as a shepherd is to guide you through that process. But even before that, to prepare you for this, because I have been around long enough To know that trials don't come when you're adequately prepared for them. Most of the time you don't get a heads up in order to prepare yourself theologically. Some might say, well, pastor, why are we spending five weeks in John chapter 11? We want to move on. We want to progress. We want to see progress. When my dad and I were building a house, there were some jobs I loved and some jobs I hated. I loved sheetrock. See the progress. Let me tell you why. And obviously this was my preaching plan that was set in motion long before Jody experienced complications from surgery and was ushered into the presence of Jesus. But why? The answer is simple. I don't want to skip over this. There's something about Jesus' conversation with Martha that we need to hear, and it deserves more than 30 minutes, which we're going to give it. But, my, my, my friends, 
There's so many that face trials. They call themselves Christians, but the trials, they overwhelm them, and they do rebuke God. They charge him with wrongdoing, and in their case, they, they walk away. They say, this is, this is too much. I can't take it. This is, it's, it's enough. You see that in the parable of the soils. I, I want these important theological truths to be so evident to you that when the shadows of the grieving mind come, they don't last. Yes, we might ask God why he allowed this, thinking that we have the right to that kind of information as if God should have consulted our wise counsel. Yeah, we might do that in the throes of grief. When we say it now, it sounds kind of ridiculous. Like we should, like God should consult us. We don't think about it that way. But to the mind that is overwhelmed by grief, these are some cases that, that the questions that spring forth from our, our heart. And our good Father knows this. Our good and perfect Father. Let me just say one more thing here before we move on. That is why the ordinary means of grace is so important. To, to sit under the, the preaching of God's word. I mean, this says little about me and much about how the Lord uses his word. That's why we call it a means of grace. God uses the proclamation of his word as, as means. A means to, to grow you and get this list. To grow you, to shape you, to equip you. And also, and don't miss this, prepare you. Going along with that, please study theology. Know the truth. What, what I mean here is the, the basic tenets of the faith. Not theological quandary. I mean the basic tenets of the faith. Let me just give you a good catechism I would recommend. It's called the Orthodox Catechism. It's, a, it's the basic question. It's the basic Christian faith and question and answer format that can be learned and taught and dug into because there's so much scriptural support. Okay. I've defended Martha quite a bit here, but I also said that in grief, our minds are in theological shadows. So the, the next question is, is was there an error in thinking on Martha's part? And I would say that her error was at least twofold. First, she assumed that Jesus had to be physically present in order to heal her brother. And we know that isn't true. Remember the father that came to Jesus and, and wanted him to come back to heal his son in John chapter 4? And Jesus just told him to go home, that his son would be fine. I mean, here's this royal official, we are told, that was at the end of his rope. His son was about to die, and he went to find Jesus, and Jesus healed him without even going there. He didn't take time to lay his hands on the child. He didn't pray over the child. He just said it, and it was so. Another error that Martha made here in her grief was that she presumed, she, she presumed on the promises of God. Do you see what I mean? She assumed that the, the will of God was for her brother to not have died. This is a, another area in which the, the ultra-charismatic group gets it way wrong, and it's dangerous. 
When I say ultra-charismatic, I mean a a lot of charismatic groups that are influenced by this are, are seriously wrong in their teaching because they believe that it is the will of God to heal. Kenneth Copeland writes this, God does not play favorites. It is his will and desire for you to be healed, period. I'll say this, theology has consequences. And bad theology has very bad consequences. And this kind of teaching is theological poison. Now, even though Martha didn't say it like Copeland, notice that he's not saying something in the midst of grief. He's actively leading people astray with with dire consequences. And we could go on and on about that. But we know from verse 6 that this was not the case. And we talked about this before. But God's will was that Lazarus died. There's, There's no way to read this text otherwise. That's difficult for some, especially in the throes of grief. It's tempting to say, well, in the midst of grief, that God has failed you because he took the one that you love. But in reality... And this is how one commentator said it. God has not promised to preserve us from death or any other trial. The author of Hebrews reminds us that it is appointed for man to die. And then comes the judgment. Let me ask you this question. If it is appointed, who appointed it? It was appointed that every person die. Who appointed it? The fact is, until Jesus returns, it is God's will that each of us will die. And suffering is the result of the curse of sin brought into humanity by our first parents. And of course, there's a great cultural conversation about poverty and injustice and all of these other things. This too is is part of the curse that will exist until Jesus returns. Yes, we can help alleviate that and we should help where we see it. Just as we try to bring comfort to the one who is grieving. But just as Jesus says in chapter 16, verse 33, in this world you will have tribulation. So build a faith that will stand up and not crumble. This is why I always point you to Christ. Because faith has an object. Faith isn't just a thing in itself. Faith trusts. It has an object. Rest in Christ alone. Trust his word, his promises. And don't presume to know more. Now we might read... Verse 20, and think that Martha's faith in Christ was abandoned. If we just left it there. But the next verse, we know that that wasn't true. She says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to really get into this but too deeply here. But some here will say that what she is asking from Jesus is to raise her brother from the dead. It's not what she means. It's very unlikely. It's unlikely because of her previous statement. And also, when we get down to verse 38, and Jesus approaches the tomb to do just that, she tries to stop him. Reminding him that he had been dead for four days, and he stinks. Now, 
What did she mean, though, when she says this? Well, again, we must remember that her heart was full of grief and emotion, and she was reaching out with faith that she has in that moment. She's asking him to help, to bring comfort. Listen to what Don Carson says here. He says, even now, in her bereavement, she has not lost her confidence in Jesus and still recognizes the particular intimacy he enjoys with his father and intimacy that ensures unprecedented fruitfulness to his prayer. In other words, she trusts Jesus. She knows that Jesus has a unique relationship with the father and she trusts him. I really don't think that we ought to make more of her statement than that. So we've looked at Martha's words. Now we need to turn to Jesus' words in response. Now just to reiterate where we have been, Martha is grieving, she's struggling, her mind is in the theological shadows, right? This is shown by her statements to Jesus as she meets him on the road. Jesus looks at her after he listens to her and he says... Your brother will rise again. Martha needed to hear this. She needed good theology in the midst of her grief. Her grief needed to be grounded in hope. And Jesus is pointing her to hope. I love the fact that in the next verse she affirms this. I know, she says, that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. There was a lot of religious Jews at the time that didn't even believe in resurrection. The Sadducees, they didn't believe in resurrection. The Pharisees believed in resurrection. So Jesus is pointing her to theological truth, to to hope, which was something that was probably a little bit controversial. And she affirms it. So it isn't that she didn't know this, but she needed to be reminded of it. The lesson that we can take from this is that when Christians are struggling, we can point them to hope, to truth, and we should. There has been a lot said about how Romans 8.28 is used at this point. Some people use it as a a platitude. Oh, you're, you're grieving and you just walk up to somebody and you just throw that on them. As if that's supposed to help. Someone gives you a hug after somebody you know passes away and they just say, Romans 8.28, brother. Not helpful. My, My point here is that just because it is true doesn't mean it will be helpful in the moment to give hope. There will be a time in which that particular truth articulated correctly will be full of hope. But just dropping a reference on somebody isn't right. But Jesus here is perfect. What is Lazarus' hope? In that moment, his hope is in the fact that Jesus gives life. What is Martha's hope in that moment? It's in the fact that her brother will live again. Jesus gives life. Mark Johnson says this of Jesus' words here. He says, the immediacy and the seeming finality of death are such that comfort of a unique order is needed to begin to banish shadow. Martha is in the shadow of grief, and Jesus doesn't rebuke her, mistakes her theological 
picadillos, but he gives hope with a great truth, and he actually reminds her of something that she already knows. Her mind's just in the shadows in the moment, and she needs clarity. And that is the hope of resurrection. But then Jesus does something remarkable. Jesus takes this theological truth that Martha already knows, the hope of a future resurrection, the hope that lies in God himself, and applies it to himself. And says, I am the resurrection and the life. This is the the fifth of the I am statements in John's gospel. We've seen Jesus as the, the bread of life, the light of the world. He is the true shepherd, the door of the sheep. And now at the scene of Lazarus' death, he tells Martha that he is the resurrection and the life. I love what J.C. Ryle says here about this I am statement. He says, Jesus tells Martha that he is not merely a human teacher of the resurrection, but the divine author of all resurrection, spiritual or physical, and the root foundation of all life. All resurrection is in Jesus And he is the fountainhead of all life. Now just so we are all on the same page here. Jesus isn't only speaking of the physical resurrection of Lazarus. Just as he isn't only speaking of the resurrection at the consummation of history. Certainly those things are included. But it isn't all that he is speaking of. This is made clear in what he says next. Whoever believes in me, although they die, yet shall he live. And anyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Certainly, there is a a spiritual element here, a spiritual resurrection that he's talking about. There is a a spiritual life to a dead soul. Paul speaks about this in Ephesians 2. Here, Paul is speaking to to the church, and he says that, These people were once dead in their sins. And he describes them uh, that way. He describes what it means to be spiritually dead. An object of God's wrath. And then he says, but God made you alive in Christ. That's resurrection. And it happens solely by the grace of God. Through faith in in the work of Jesus on their behalf. Jesus is speaking of something very similar here. He's telling Martha that he is True life. And for those who believe, this life begins at present. And although that one believes, they, 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 they die physically, but they shall live. Let me just go to the Orthodox Catechism that I mentioned earlier on this question. This is question 45. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? Answer, first, By his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make us share in the righteousness he won for us by his death. Second, by his power, we are already now resurrected to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is a guarantee of our glorious resurrection. Certainly, what is happening in John chapter 11 is pointing to Christ's glorious resurrection on our, ha- on our behalf. When Jesus says that he is the resurrection, he is pointing to his own resurrection and the benefit of it. And it is because of that resurrection that his perfect obedience becomes ours. That we are spiritually raised from death to life in what we call regeneration, a new birth. And we are promised the resurrection of the body at the end of time. It's guaranteed. Question 57. How does the resurrection of the body comfort you? Answer. Not only my soul will be taken immediately after this life.
to Christ, its head, but even my flesh, raised by the power of Christ, will be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. Essentially, Jesus is saying something very similar to this to Martha when he declares himself to be the resurrection and the life. That there is life in his name. She obviously didn't see the entire picture, for Christ hadn't died yet, but he was pointing her to that reality. And then he asked her, do you believe this? This has been the the question, right, in in John's gospel. Do you believe? Remember, the, the purpose of the gospel is that you might read these things about Jesus and believe. Jesus was after people to believe in him, to trust in him wholeheartedly for salvation of their souls. And Martha was no exception. He wasn't going to leave it there. He's going to ask her. And the master minister in this moment does what? He directs Martha to himself. Do you believe this? He is the source of true comfort because he is the resurrection and the life. There's so much about this phrase that that I would love to get into, but we just don't have the time. But we have to love her answer, don't we? Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Do you believe? He asks. Her answer essentially is, not only do I believe what you have said, but I believe who you claim to be. It's a beautiful statement. Let me just close with this. The words of B.B. Warfield. B.B. Warfield, that's a name you should know. He was a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary from 1886 to 1921. That was when Princeton was still good. He was one of the last conservative Presbyterian theologians before the split in 1929, a split that formed Westminster Theological Seminary, which is the conservative side. So Princeton was liberal after that. Anyway, Warfield said this about Jesus' words, quote, I am the resurrection and the life. Whatever death is and all that death is, that is what we shall be saved from in this salvation. And whatever life is, that all that life is, that is what we shall be saved to in this salvation. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.